Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Hello folks and welcome back to part two of our two-part series on the Avro Arrow. When we last left off, Russell Isinger had taken us through the historical background to the Arrow program and some of the major decisions being made to affect its eventual non-completion. But the story does not stop there. As many of you might be aware, the Arrow's cancellation got wrapped up into the larger issue of Canada's role in the Cold War world, specifically our relationship to our American allies and our ongoing efforts to try and grasp on to potentially unifying Canadian symbols. The cancellation of the Arrow not only had immediate ramifications for Canada's aviation industry, but its long-term significance is perhaps even more important. Now, to wrap up our two-part series, we are going to deep dive into why the Arrow becomes such a polarizing issue in this country and settle once and for all, why was it cancelled And who was to blame? This is Season 7, Episode 20, The Avro Arrow, Part 2. Today's guest, of course, is Russell Isinger. Now, Russell did his graduate work on the controversial CF-105 Avro Arrow Interceptor, one of the first researchers to access the declassified archival record on the project. Since then, Russ has continued his research and writing on the Arrow, usually in collaboration with his former graduate supervisor, Don Story. They are currently working on a book, delving into the political and military decision-making behind the project. I began part two by asking Russell if there was any immediate fallout from the cancellation of the Arrow program? Not as much as you would think. And, and it does lead into the, the, the later, our, we'll talk about how the myth arised. But at the time, uh, it was not a big story. Uh, and, and I'll qualify that because it certainly was a big story for Toronto. 
like uh, where all the workers were. So it was a big story for the company. Uh, company laid off like 15,000 workers the day it was canceled, although they quietly called back several thousand of them the later weeks. But uh, it the, the decision was essentially fatal to AV Row and their, their the Avro aircraft and Orenda. Um, so that was an, a consequence. And as, as many of your listeners will know, one, one of the consequences was that is the workforce, the skilled workforce left for other companies and other, some of them Canadian, like Canadair and de Havilland. Uh, but they also left for NASA. They left for big American aircraft companies. They left for the United Kingdom um, and, uh, and, and did, you know, continue to do their work there. I mean, in many ways, the Concorde program owes a lot to the Aero program, uh, not just in its uh, design, but uh, a lot of engineers. And NASA owes a lot to the cancellation because at least a couple dozen engineers went there. So that was a real consequence and a real controversy in Toronto. Outside of Toronto and Canada, not so much. Uh, it was really seen as a Southern Ontario story. Um, there were other concerns in other parts of the country about what the government was spending money on and what it could better spend money on, like uh, crop supports and uh, pensions and social programs and uh, the beginnings uh, stages of, of Medicare were actually in the Diefenbaker government's a form of hospitalized insur hospital insurance. Um, so there were other spending projects that... Uh, that people wanted to see the government work on. And in general, in the press in Canada, he was lauded for having the political courage to make the decision. And a lot of the mail he received, because you can go through the mail in the, in the uh, Baker Center archives, uh, was positive, like uh, praising him for finally making the decision that uh, this boondoggle uh, needed to be ended. Um, outside of Canada, not an issue, really. Uh, really didn't have any impact on any other NATO allies because this was, a, this was for North American air defense, as long as we were fulfilling our commitments elsewhere, which I think the feeling was that, that that freed up money that we could now guarantee that we were going to fulfill our NATO commitment. And we did, we, we bought the CF-104 Starfighter and built it at Canadair and uh, built the engines at Arenda. So, uh, so that, was, that was going ahead and that, that satisfied NATO. The Americans, you know, they, they were of the opinion all through the program, I have to say, and we'll talk about American influence, uh, I'm sure more, but they were always encouraging of what, of the Arrow, they thought the Arrow was a fine aircraft. Uh, they weren't gonna buy it, they were very clear on that, but they thought it was an excellent aircraft. And if that's what Canada wanted to do to equip its Air Force, they were fully supportive. Um, as long as we did something. <laughs> so whether it's the Arrow or some other aircraft, totally up to us. So canceling it, we, they recognized it was a difficult political decision, but that's totally our decision. Um, and ultimately, that was because what the Americans thought the contribution of Canada to continental defense was, the most important contribution, was not the aircraft, but the radars. So it was, it was kind of an attitude like, you, you do whatever you want with the aircraft that you want to build, as long as you build the radars with us, the distance uh, warning, uh, the dew line, uh, you know, the Mid-Canada line, uh, the Pine Tree line, you know, that is what's important. And that is what's important because it protects the Strategic Air Command. It, it allows the warning that the Strategic Air Command needs of a Soviet attack for the bombers to get off the ground and strike. And Canada's greatest contribution was always viewed as that. 
and the RCAF's active defense of North America was incidental. Fine, fine if you wanted to do it. Uh, if you don't do it, we'll do it for you, uh, which of course was politically unacceptable to the Canadian government because that was questions of sovereignty. But there was always the promise uh, or the reality that the Americans were going to defend North America, um, whether we defended it or not, <laughs> that, uh, that, that they, they would move fighters to Canada if we wanted to in a crisis. They would, their fighters would and their missiles would launch over Canadian territory if they had to. Um, so they weren't terribly concerned about the, uh, about the cancellation. It was more that we, we, we maintained a commitment uh, to the American strategic concept of what was important in defending North America, which was protecting the deterrent. And protecting the deterrent was everything to the United States Air Force. That's uh, really, really fascinating. Um, were, were, were there consequences for the Diefenbaker administration because of the cancellation? Not immediately, but I think in the long term, there were. Um, there's a suggestion amongst a, a number of people, a lot of them Tory cabinet ministers who wrote their memoirs, that the decision was so difficult, even though there was pretty much consensus at cabinet as to what needed to be done. Um, and they were the, the, the military consensus had come around to that point of view that cancellation was necessary. But it was still such an, an agonizing experience that it made making further decisions challenging for the government. Um, Diefenbaker was a kind of person who ran a cabinet wanting consensus. Uh, it wasn't like he necessarily had strong views, some of his cabinet ministers had said as to what needed to be done, but he wanted a consensus to come out of cabinet um, so they could go forward as a united front. That worked in the arrow and that they got that consensus. It became harder and harder to get a consensus as the government went forward. Um, Diefenbaker was the ultimate partisan prime minister. So he tended to see everything in terms of consequences um, at the polls. And he was very conscious of wanting to protect that massive majority that he had won. Because of course, if you win the largest majority in Canadian history, you really the only, way, the only place you can go is down. Uh, and, and, and he became much more cautious about making decisions that could have a negative impact on the future of his government. The problem for that government is there were a, and kind of unique to Canadian governments that are not in wartime anyway, is almost all the decisions that followed involved defense and foreign policy. So it was a domino, the arrow, arrow was a domino in a series of defense, uh, defense decisions that all sort of conspired to cause the Diefenbaker government problems. By canceling the Arrow, they agreed to accept a number of weapon systems, like the CF-104 Starfighter for Europe, like the Bomark missile, uh, like the CF-101B uh, interceptor for the NORAD squadrons, like the Honest John surface-to-air missile, et cetera, et cetera, that all required nuclear weapons to function properly. And there was political consequences to that because the weapons had to come from the United States and, and be under a shared responsibility. And there was uh, a growing anti-nuclear movement in Canada uh, that didn't want the weapons here at all, which the Liberal government, which in, in classic Canadian uh, tradition, had 
changed sides on because the liberal government had had not been very enthusiastic, I'd say, about nuclear weapons when they were in power, even though they knew they were designing systems that needed them. Um, but certainly when they were in opposition, decided to to uh, to have some level of opposition to the to nuclear weapons, uh, like they would they would have said that uh, Pearson would have said they would accept them, but they would quickly try to find a way to get them out of the out of the armed forces. So that made Diefenbaker very very wary of accepting the the warheads uh, for the for all the systems that he had bought, and this came to a uh, an obvious uh, public. Uh, moment when the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred in 1962, um, where it was sort of revealed that a lot of our weapon systems were kind of useless without the, without the, the weapon, the warheads on them. And, and it became a huge controversy. The, the, the acceptance of nuclear weapons, which Diefenbaker decided to argue uh, more against taking them at the later stages of his government, actually brought the government down at, at, at one point. It remains the only government because it had been reduced to a minority government by 1962. Um, it's the only government to fall on a non-confidence motion related to foreign and defense policy. And part of it was this, this lack of decision-making ability on how to, how to equip the armed forces uh, and, uh, and the nuclear weapons issue, and, and a certain anti-Americanism that had, had crept into the government uh, when the Kennedy administration had come in uh, and that had a difficult working relationship with the Diefenbaker government. So the arrow is often seen as that first link in that chain that, uh, that caused the Diefenbaker government's problems with making decisions that led to its, its downfall in 1963. And it's interesting that you say anti-Americanism. Um, perhaps no story in Canadian history has been caught up in nationalist narratives, nationalist rhetoric. Um, could, could you explore this nationalist narrative a little bit, this anti-Americanism, this so pro-Canadianism? Could you maybe explore this for, the, for our listeners a little bit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the Americans are, are, are uh, a big part of this story, a big part of the myth, too. Uh, and it sort of got caught up with the, how the Arrow story evolved after its cancellation. And as I said, it, it was not a big deal at the time, but as the Diefenbaker government started to have its problems, um, people started to sort of go back and revisit earlier decisions. So, so there, was a, there was starting to be a questioning of, well, was that the right decision? Like we're seeing a lot of decisions now on Beaumark and, and Voodoo and Starfighter that don't seem to be the good ones. So was that a good decision? And for some people, it started becoming a, a, a narrative of, no, that, that probably wasn't a good decision either. But then it got caught up in, you have to remember 1960s Canada, and that uh, the, the culture, the political culture was changing. Um, there was a lot of concern in, in the 1960s, both about nuclear weapons, but also broadly about Canada's place in North America and as part of, you know, for lack of a better term, part of the American empire. So this, this nascent Canadian nationalism uh, partly caught up with the peace movement, but uh, also caught up with this, this uh, increasing worry about the influence that the United States played in the Canadian economy and on Canadian culture. Uh, the phrase at the time we heard a lot of was the branch plant economy, 
that uh, Canada didn't really have any uh, corporations of its own or invention of its own or technology of its own. We were all uh, making things for the United States uh, companies and all the profits were going out of Canada. Um, and here we have the Arrow, which was a Canadian company, well, at least perceived as a Canadian company, it was actually a British company, part of Hawker Sidley, but uh, Canadian, certainly found, founded in Canada. Um, here was a company that had been you know, in Canada and employed Canadians, had developed a Canadian product, and, and, and somehow that, that must be a tragedy because look around us. We, don't, we, don't, we are not makers of anything that we uh, make ourselves. We make things that the Americans want us to make. So that, that nascent Canadian nationalism that started in the 60s, the arrow got caught up in that. And, and it, it doesn't hurt that if you've got also a, a, a sense of mistrust and uh, of the Americans, that it's a story that you can start uh, uh, elements of it, at least you can say that, well, the Americans had it in for the aircraft too. Um, so it's just another example of American interference in Canadian uh, politics and Canadian affairs to keep us down. I think it's caught up in these inferiority complex that uh, Canadians often had with vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States. And uh, so, so this is here, here's a perfect symbol of what's wrong with us. We had, we were the greatest in the world. Uh, we, were, we were stymied in that by small-minded people in our own government and by the United States, which always wants to keep us down uh, so that they can have their own products uh, bought by us and they can have, they make the decisions. It was perfect for that. Even if it wasn't necessarily true, um, like most myths have a kernel of truth and then you extrapolate from them. So the idea, the worries about sovereignty, I would say that came up in the 1960s, Canadian sovereignty, uh, the arrow became a useful symbol for that. And uh, you know, if you carry that through today, I mean, the obvious question is, well, why, why do we still remember it after all these years? And because I think at, at that time in Canadian uh, political culture, it got ingrained, deeply ingrained in the popular culture and political culture as a symbol. Uh, that's hard to shake off. So you may not know much about the history uh, behind it, but you know, you, you, it's a recognizable thing to Canadians. And they know enough about it to have an opinion about it, which is usually that it should never have been canceled. It was a terrible tragedy. And even though I, I don't think we're living in a period of, of that kind of Canadian nationalism, we're a much more confident country now, I don't believe, uh, talking to students uh, and others these days, that we have in any way an inferiority complex uh, versus the United States anymore. We don't think of ourselves as a branch plant economy, but it has stuck there and has been kept alive in the popular culture as this, as a symbol of how great we could have been if, if we'd only been allowed to, to succeed. And Certainly, it's kept alive and by by uh, popular literature, which uh, I mean, you and I both work in Canadian military history and Canadian politics. Um, there's a whole bunch of buff books we call them, a whole bunch of people who are not historians but who who write literature on this. Uh, and, and I think you could put a picture of the Aurora on a phone book and probably sell it. Um, so it it is. It is popular in that sense that there's a market for it and there's people who, who stoke the market because they also believe for their own reasons that it, the cancellation was wrongheaded and they start from that premise. So that keeps it alive. Uh, social media now keeps it alive in a way that uh, 
wouldn't have been expected when I when I did my for my graduate work on this uh, years ago. Um, you can go online and 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 look at any number of Facebook pages and others devoted to this, where where people are keeping the uh, the, the the hope alive. And and it's interesting that that's where you find a lot of your continuing uh, you know, the anti-Americanism, the conspiracy theories. Um, uh, ideas that I would say are, are often out of context of the reality of defense policy. So like, uh, why can't we just build it again? Like just pull the blueprints out and, and, and continue to build it. The idea is that it would still be in service or in some version of it, that we lost the opportunity to be Boeing or Lockheed Martin uh, by canceling it. So, so it's kept alive out there in uh, some, some part of it conspiratorial, but part of it as a, as a symbol of, uh, of what we could achieve. And I would say that there's a positive aspect to it now that I don't think was there before. And that, that for some Canadians, it's not about the controversy, it's about the achievement. Because those engineers uh, at, at Avro, um, they delivered what they were asked to deliver. So it's, it's something we can take pride in, even though it was never put into service as, as a remarkable technological achievement of Canadian history. So, so there's an element of that, a, 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 a proud moment, um, sort of kept alive by heritage moments and CBC miniseries that are somewhat questionably historic. And uh, the Royal Canadian Mint released coins recently that had it on it. Um, so there's that achievement aspect. And then there's still this nationalistic um, sense of betrayal, conspiracy, uh, both of which are keeping the whole it alive, which is good for people like me who like to write about it. <laughs> and of course, uh, Dan Aykroyd did the famous uh, CBC uh, he movie did. on it, right? Um, yes. And uh, Dan Aykroyd's uh, mother had been the secretary to Crawford Gordon at Avro Aircraft. So he had a personal connection to that. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Do, do you know much about the Canadians that left to NASA and other places? Um, are you able to maybe expand on how, ca how Canadians contributed to other projects after the Avro's cancellation? Oh, yes. I mean, about 25 or so engineers went uh, almost immediately. The most uh, uh, prominent of which was Jim Chamberlain, who was the chief aerodynamicist for, uh, for Avro. Uh, and a brilliant man. Um, so I, uh, as, as the story goes, that uh, recruiters showed up at the plants pretty quickly from the major companies and the major agencies because they weren't, they, their reputation was, was known, um, that there were good engineers there. Um, so about two dozen or so went down to NASA and uh, worked on, uh, you know, Mercury and Gemini and Apollo uh, and made a real contribution. Like they're, they're, they, 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 I know there's a, a official history, I believe it is, of NASA where it says that they arrived at just the right time. Like they arrived with their skill set at a time when NASA needed that, and they made a outsized contribution to the space program in the United States. Um, so 
So certainly that was for, for many of them, that was uh, that was their next career. They, they, they moved to the United States and did that. But lots of them went to other aerospace companies. You know, they, they, they distributed around to Canadian, American, British and, and other. Um, but of course, not everyone at an aircraft company is an engineer. So I, I think we have to recognize that lots of people were out of work and had to find other careers. And, and part of the bitterness about the decision is certainly the, 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 that legacy and people whose parents were, were hurt by this uh, and certainly had no love of John Diefenbaker after, after that. Um, so that there were a lot of people who did have to find uh, other careers, uh, I'm sure. But the engineers uh, like Jim Floyd, uh, who went to uh, made a contribution to the Concorde program, um, John Frost, who was a brilliant, if eccentric engineer, who had uh, worked on the special projects at Avro, which included the not successful Avro car, which was their attempt to build a, a vertical takeoff and landing flying saucer. Um, he he uh, wow. went. He continued his work, uh, but uh, so there was a dispersal of a highly skilled workforce. That that is certainly one of the things that the government was criticized for at the time. But a, a little known aspect of this, which people don't tend to talk about, is part of the strategy that the government had um, for the wake of the Arrow decision, where there was a recognition that that Canada was not going to design weapon systems from blueprint to production anymore, but that if the Americans expected us to buy their products, then we'd have to have some role in their production. So you can make a government uh, negotiated the defense production sharing arrangement in 1958 um, that acknowledged that, you know, we were not going to be designers of whole weapon systems any, any longer, um, that it was too expensive that we'd learn that. But we would be we would participate and profit in uh, providing components of the Americans' weapon systems. Um, so even though there was a large uh, departure of people from the workforce in '59, uh, five years later there was as many, if not more, people working in the Canadian aerospace sector. Um, again, largely because we were license building or building parts or contributing to the US defense projects. But that's what sort of kept the Canadian aviation industry alive for a long time is production sharing, um, which, which we are still doing. I mean, we are, we are hearing in the news now that the F-35 decision, which was finally made, um, is now proceeding on to where we are negotiating what industrial offsets we are going to get as part uh, based on the idea that if we're buying this product, you need to put some manufacturing into this country, um, which is part of the reason we were involved in that project from the first moment uh, had bought in was so that we could be we could benefit from it if we were going to buy it. And that's uh, that really helped sustain the Canadian aviation industry, kept Canadair uh, and de Havilland alive to become Bombardier, to become the company that actually was very successful uh, in the civil aviation industry afterwards. So it preserved in many ways, the jobs of a lot of the people. It's just, they're not, we're not building our own uh, military aircraft any longer. And, and, and what I find so interesting about that is that often the narrative says, you know, the Avro era was canceled and that killed ca Canadian aviation. And, and I've heard this on, 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 on different, you know, meet, platforms and mediums and stuff like that but what you're what you're clearly showing is that it didn't in any way you know uh, canadian aviation continued um it's just in different different formats than our own airplane um 
which is so fascinating. Um, what 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 plane eventually replaced the Arrow? It it took a while, and I'd say this was also one of the consequences of the decision is that Diefenbaker did not particularly want to admit, uh, for reasons I think of pride, uh, that we couldn't afford it. So he tended to frame the argument, uh, which was disingenuous, I would say, uh, in terms of the strategic changes, like, well, maybe we don't need an aircraft, maybe the Bomark will uh, will be sufficient. Um, that outraged the Royal Canadian Air Force, I have to say, whose advice at the time had been, uh, we're prepared to accept the cancellation, but we do not accept that we don't need both missiles and interceptors. So we need a replacement interceptor. So it was only 1961 by the time the government finally made a decision um, and they received uh, 66 CF-101 McDonnell Douglas voodoo interceptors from the United States. And they they came in a complicated uh, swap uh, arrangement as we sometimes have with the Americans where we, we got them, but we didn't accept them as military aid because Canada politically could would never accept that we would take military aid, but we took over the operation of certain radar installations, the cost of and other things. And we essentially worked a trade uh, where we got the 66 interceptors, um, which by all accounts performed their job remarkably well. I've, I've certainly heard and read uh, about RCAF evaluations of it and that it was, a, it was kind of it was an interceptor that did the job it is telling that in the end 66 aircraft were enough to do the job uh, and so the arguments for production of the arrow are kind of undermined by the fact that the, that we only needed five squadrons worth of interceptors by the mid-1960s and the voodoo soldiered on in that role until the uh, f-18 replaced it in 1984 and of course canadians don't don't remember uh, that the Voodoo was armed with nuclear weapons, that the Voodoo carried the Genie uh, uh, air-to-air missile uh, for a lot of its career until we negotiated uh, later on to remove all nuclear weapons from the Canadian Armed Forces, but it was a nuclear-armed aircraft. Um, It was also, ironically, one of the aircraft that had been rejected in 1952 when the RCAF went around and looked at everything that was on the drawing boards and in production. As, uh, as, uh, as unacceptable for the Royal Canadian Air Force. Uh, admittedly, that was a slightly different you know, version of it or prospect of it, but it still seemed to be good enough uh, by 1961 uh, for the RCAF. But, so that was the replacement for, the, uh, for, for NORAD. And, and, and it spoke to the, the numbers of them really spoke to the diminishing role of bomber interception uh, in North America because the Soviets had shifted to missiles. Um, though they still had bombers and still have bombers, and in some cases are still the same bombers that they had then, because it's still the same design, um, they really uh, were not uh, a bomber force in the way that the United States Strategic Air Command was. Um, so we didn't need as many uh, in the end. Uh, that's that's so interesting. <laughs> I, I did not know that they had actually looked at the voodoo uh, back, back in the day before the, the, the Aero project was going on. So that's you know, Russell, it's so so interesting. You've you've identified. This is a. The, I, I'm I'm struggling for words because this is kind of a. This is the most complex, one of the most complex topics to talk about. There are so many layers to this: uh, political, economic, military, social, uh, etc. Um, um, and and I and you've done a great job of of sort of laying out. You've unfolded uh, the story so 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 much. 
Um, as a person who studied this for so long, uh, does the story of the arrow, what, what, does it tell you anything or does it tell us anything about Canadian society or Canada in general? Is there, is there something to pull from this about who, who we are as Canadians? I, I, it's a weird question, but I wonder if, if you could answer that. Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I think we have every reason to be proud of, of, of the arrow uh, and what that, those people who worked on it achieved even though it didn't go ahead. Uh, I, I'm always a little bothered by the negativity of it, uh, the, the vitriol, the conspiracy. Um, lots of aircraft programs were canceled in lots of countries. Um, and aviation buffs you know, are outraged by all of them. Uh, but they tend to look at the technology as an end in itself rather than a means uh, to a defense policy end. Uh, if you start from the premise that the aircraft could do what it wanted to, uh, what you wanted it to do, what the Air Force wanted it to do, so it should have been built, regardless of any other factor, uh, you're missing a lot, you know, the context, etc. Um, so I, I think that uh, as a as a symbol of Canadian achievement, it's it, it's 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 great, but uh, I, I do think we freight too many things onto it sometimes as a society or parts of our society do uh, that it never was. Uh, it, it, it was. It was a tool uh, to be put to, to a particular end and it wasn't needed for that end. And it's why context is so important to the Arrow story. I think uh, what a lot of the buff books miss because they are focused on, on the Arrow as an end in itself is the context in which the story unfolded, you know, the context in Canadian politics and the economy, the context in international relations, in uh, United States defense policy, um, all that information's there, uh, but it tends to get ignored um, because you focus on the fact that you really, really would have liked to have seen that aircraft built. And then you parse the information that proves that point. Um, so as, as you and I know, who have spent a lot of time in archives, you know, it's dangerous to go into an archives with your mind made up because you will find things that, uh, that, that prove it and then you will ignore things that, that don't. Uh, you've got to, to be a, a, a historical researcher, you've got to keep an open mind and, and put yourself in the shoes of the people who were there at the time and the decisions they had to make with the information that they had. Um, and that tells you, you know, all, uh, that tells you the story, so. So, Russell, what role did the Americans play in all of this sort of cancellation process? Well, the Americans, of course, are often painted as the other villain in this after Diefen Baker because of uh, uh, the feeling that they would have uh, they put pressure on the Canadian government to cancel it in favor of their own products. Um, there's just not evidence of this. Uh, the Americans were unfailingly enthusiastic about the project, which I would say the Royal Canadian Air Force often took as tantamount to a commitment to purchase. That wasn't the case. They were, you know, they were fellow aviators and engineers. They admired what was being done up here and, and they were supportive if that's what we wanted to do. But this sort of ties into the questions of sales. Um, so the idea that uh, many people have that if the arrow, if we just built the arrow, people would have bought it. It was so good that, you know, allies would have bought it. And there was never any chance of sales like the Americans and the British. Um, this was brought up on many occasions. 
and it was always the same. You know, we, we admire the product that you've come up with, but we're not going to buy it. We have our own aviation industry uh, to, that's a strong lobby in Washington and London. Uh, we have our own operational requirements uh, that the aero isn't quite suited to. Like Americans could had a lot of air bases, had a very well-established radar environment. They didn't need a two-engine aircraft. They didn't need a aircraft that could navigate and fire its missiles without a, without a ground environment. Uh, they were perfectly content with their own products, but thank you very much. They would encourage us. So the idea that then that, that well, okay, but they really wanted us to, uh, they just wanted us to buy their products. They were perfectly happy with us having our own aviation industry. Um, so I could find and still have not found any convincing evidence that pressure was put on us to either cancel it in favor of, of buying like the Voodoo um, or the Bowmark. Um, if we wanted them, they're happy to provide them. And in fact, at good, a good rate, uh, but otherwise uh, it was up to us. I think the best evidence that there wasn't a concern about us having an aviation industry or buying our own products was there was a 1958 meeting between the Secretary of the Air Force of the United States and the Canadian ambassador, where the Secretary acknowledged that the Americans could recognize the political difficulties that Canada was having in affording its own weapon systems and uh, the questions we were struggling with about sovereignty and prestige and the, and the economic ramifications and very supportive. But it was at that meeting that they reminded us that they were proceeding with the development of the F-108 rapier, um, which was, uh, as, as if I remember the quote, was uh, so, so complex and expensive that it looked like the arrow would be something you'd pick up in a department store next to it. So, so that was clear. But in that meeting, they actually offered to buy arrows and give them to the Royal Canadian Air Force. So they said, we'll, we'll buy a couple of squadrons worth. Well, if you're having this kind of trouble, we'll give them as military aid to the Royal Canadian Air Force. Now, this was rejected immediately as politically unacceptable to Canada, which does not take foreign aid. But it's hardly the actions of a country that is conspiring to destroy your aviation industry. So I think that this idea of, of American involvement uh, that has been popular in the buff books and in the, in, in the, the myth, um, there just is no evidence there. Like, would they sell us aircraft if we wanted them? Absolutely. I mean, the Americans and the British, they would sell aircraft to anybody just as we would. Um, but they did not, I, as far as I can see, put direct pressure on us to cancel the aircraft in any way, shape, or form. So just, I, I want to make this point really clear. You're saying that they offered to buy the arrow, buy a couple squadrons of the arrows, and sell it back or give it back to us. Give it back to us. Yeah. That, I mean, that alone is, is pretty clear evidence of, of, yeah. of the non-conspiratorial nature of this whole thing, isn't it? I think so. And, and you know, when I, I'm sure the Canadian ambassador also, Norman Robertson, who was a very smart man, also recognized that this wasn't going to give us the economies of scale to make the production line economical. Like it might help, uh, but politically it wouldn't have helped. But that really that 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 didn't make it that much cheaper for the Canadian government to go ahead. But but as we as we said, it's not exactly uh, political pressure to end your your aircraft program. So so yes, the Americans I, I've always found in the documentation were were very straight with us that that we weren't going to buy it, but it's a great aircraft. If that's what you want, we're happy to support you having it.
I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends. Friends.